0: 2, Acts chapter 2, we're still in Acts, we've been studying the book of Acts, Um, the title of this study we've been looking at is a church ablaze and looking and learning from the New Testament church here, the beginning and we've we've looked at all kinds of stuff, we've been going through and really delving in and uh, we finished up with Peter's sermon last week and tonight we're going to continue where we left off there and we're in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 41 we'll be reading here in just a moment. You want to go ahead and grab your Bible, turn there to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and verse number 41. Let's go ahead and read this together. I'll read aloud as you follow along. Notice what it says Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul. Such as should be saved. Let's have a word of prayer. Just ask the Lord to to bless our Bible study tonight. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the beautiful picture that we see here of the local church, the local New Testament church. And Lord, we see so many things that we can learn from as we study the book of Acts, the history of the church. I pray, Lord, that we would see tonight um, how the church should um, act, what we should do, uh, what is most important. Lord, I pray that you challenge our hearts as we study the word of God, and Lord, that may we have the desire, the fervency within our heart as this early church did. Lord, I pray that you'd meet with us now. Bless your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think about it. Remember when you had that first baby? How many of you all have had children raise your hand up? Okay, many people, so you know what it's like. Some of you, you're still looking forward to that moment. That time will come if it's God's will. But I remember having that first baby, and I just want to kind of picture it. There's a man, he says to his wife, as he's holding this brand new infant baby in this little bundle like this, they just got home from the hospital, and he says, now what do we do? Huh. You know, babies don't come with an instruction manual unless you count the Word of God's instruction manual, which I say it is, but I'm talking about the everyday needs of different things. Now what do we do? We've bought the clothes, we've had the shower, we've put things in the closet, we have all these different toys and gadgets for children, but now, what do we do? Listen, there's nothing that can prepare you to answer and equip you for the road ahead as far as all the answers for that. There's just a lot of things and a lot of questions. Now, in the second, and third, and fourth, and fifth, like we had, things start to get a little bit easier, you start learning what you're supposed to do, and there's a lot of things. My wife's going, yeah, right, (laughs) every child's different. But, you know, there's a lot of questions. You know, you remember when you had that baby, though, and I remember it. I got a good, well, actually, my wife did this past week as we had Avery, our youngest grandchild, spending a couple of days with us, being up late at night. One night, Charity did not get much sleep. The baby was up half the night. But do you remember? Some of you have been blessed. You've got these children that just sleep, like, from 9 o'clock p.m. to 9 a.m., you know what I'm saying, Isaiah? You know? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Most people don't have that, though. We look back and remember being woken up and, and through the night. And the endless changing of diapers. Amen. Amen. Yes. Endless. Endless. Praise the Lord for a godly wife that took care of most of that. Now, I'd had my share. I've changed diapers. I'm still changing diapers. But you know, And then taking the children to the doctor with ear problems. And having to get tubes put in. Several of our kids have been through all of that. You know, and, and, and then, you know, the, the, the continual things that you must go through. and You know, looking forward to the future. Listen, if you just had a child, I'm not trying to scare you or nothing. If you haven't had one yet, uh, you know, there's going to be temper tantrums. We ought to handle them the correct way. There's no doubt, but you're going to have them. Those little white lies when children don't tell the truth. Anybody here had a child that never told a lie? Yeah, okay, that's what I thought. Things you've got to put up with, and, and, or how about the fits of defiance? I will not do it. Now, usually those defiant fits lasted about one time in my household, um, but every one of my children had them, <laughs> and, and you learn very, they learn very quickly, this is not the right choice to make. I'm not going to be defiant. Now, some kids are harder than others on that, but you're going to go through that, and so the question of now, what should we do, is an excellent question you saying, why are you saying all of this? Because we're looking at the church, it's an infancy stage, and, and understand what's going on here. The, the, the apostles, they, they surveyed thousands of baby believers who joined the church on the day of Pentecost, and they must have been asking the same question. You know, even though they were the apostles, and even though they were empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, can you imagine the weight that they must have felt at that moment? 3,000 new believers? I know how it is when we have vacation Bible school. What it's like? Can you imagine three thousand new believers that got baptized and were added into the church? And you know, here they went from in the upper room. How many how many disciples were in the upper room? Do y'all remember? How many? Hmm. What? No, the disciples in in the upper room, and they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. How many were there? Do y'all remember? Yeah. Anybody remember? We we went over this like several times in this Bible study, but it's one hundred and twenty. I'll give it to you. I know it's snowing out. We've got a winter weather advisory out. You guys still made it here, so praise the Lord. And uh, it's warm in here. It's easy to go to sleep. But remember, um, you know, there was 120. There they were. And now they have the Day of Pentecost. There's 3,000 new members. Now think of the percentage of increase with that and the weight and, the, and the, the, the challenge that they would have been facing. These newborn Christians would require wise parenting to learn how to walk with Christ, how to handle temptation, how to worship, how to pray. So many things they had to teach them, and so the apostles they they had you know they had an instruction manual at the time right they had this book that they were to open up and able to follow right no they did not they did not have uh, you know a, a church bylaws or constitution of the the, the polit, uh, polity of how the church was going to run at that moment they didn't have a, a, a guidebook that told them now you can, I know you're going to say the word of God but yeah they had the Old Testament. But they did not have the New Testament yet. They didn't have the epistles. Epistles hadn't been written yet. They had the only thing they had when concerning the Gospels is what Christ had given to them. But if they didn't have like we open up. Okay, turn to John chapter three. They didn't have the the Gospels written there for them. They didn't have a book of Acts to be able to go back, and they didn't have the pastoral epistles. And so here they are. They've got three thousand. I mean, new uh, bundles of joy, you might say. And there's 3,000, you know, we're talking about individuals with different needs and different problems, different challenges. And they're they're so demanding and exhausting, they they need constant care. You know, same thing with with infants. I'm using parallel, obviously, with children and infants. You think about getting that child, there's so much work that is involved. When a baby's growing, they need instruction, they need warnings, they need love, they need attention, they need encouragement. And so we see a parallel here. Here in Acts chapter 2 we see 3000 baby believers who are given the best care as they prepare for their new life in Christ. And by the way, this new life in Christ is in a hostile environment. People are not going to be thrilled the fact that they became a follower of Jesus Christ. It's a hostile environment. So how do the apostles how do they parent these newest members of God's family? And I want us to look at that, how they did it. We see a pattern that is is laid out here really before us. And we see that, that, that there's three distinguishing dimensions that emerge that reveal this to be a remarkable church. And the three that we see here is, and kind of just an overview of it, we're going to be breaking it down and looking at it for the next three weeks, but we see that there was a manifested spiritual duties that were given. There were uh, the manifested spiritual attitudes, and as the result was a spiritual impact that took place. And so I want to break it down a little bit more than that. I want to begin tonight looking at what is a New Testament church. That's the overall thinking. And under that, I want us to tonight focus in on the mark of the New Testament church. The mark of the New Testament church. So once again, let's remember the context here in Acts chapter 2. What's going on? We already see what has taken place. The Holy Spirit of God has, has been given. The, the promise had been given. They have now received the Holy Spirit. Peter gets up. He preaches a, a, an amazing message with the great power of the Holy Spirit of God. That The crowd is, is thousands of people, but we know it, it must have exceeded at least 3,000 because 3,000 uh, ended up believing. But as we look at the breakdown of what's going on, chapter 2, verse 14, we see they were confronted with the truth. They were convicted by the Spirit in verse 37. They were converted to the Lord in verse 41. They confessed their faith in verse 41. And we now are, they are having communion with the saints in verse 41. It says they were added. And so we see here a blueprint before us of the New Testament church. And in a nutshell, we hear the gospel, we receive the Lord, we are baptized, and then we are added to the church. We hear the gospel, you receive the Lord, you're baptized, you're added to the church. You know, before, before I go any further, let me just ask the question: could it be that you've never followed the Lord in believers' baptism? Now, I don't know every single person here that that if you have or not, but if you haven't, that's something that you need to do. Follow the Lord in believers' baptism, confess your faith publicly through baptism. Maybe you've been baptized. Have you submitted yourself to the rule of the local church? Have you joined the local church? Now, maybe you're in transition right now. You're still praying for God's leading. I understand that. But as God would lead, and when God says this is where he's putting you, you need to join a local New Testament church. And if this is the church God leads you to, you need to join the church. You need to become part of it. They were added. We see that uh, pattern that's here. And, and, you know, in the New Testament, we certainly don't see lone wolf Christians. We don't see Christians that are doing whatever they want to do underneath no authority of the local church, doing, going here, going there. God, God doesn't work that way. God established the institution of the church for the purpose of his children becoming part of and joining with a local New Testament church and therefore doing what he had commanded the church to do, fulfilling the Great Commission. And so you need to be part of a church. Those people who were saved were baptized. Those who were baptized, here we're looking at it, they were added. And those who were added, in verse 42, it says they continued steadfastly. Continued steadfastly. So what did they continue steadfastly in? That's what I want to look at tonight. I want to notice four marked things that we see in this infant church. Four things that marked the infant church. The first one is this. It was marked by the truth. Look at verse 42 again. Notice what it says. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Doctrine is not a bad word. Many churches today, they say, check your doctrine out at the door when you come in. We just want to show love. We don't want doctrine. No, no. You have to have the doctrine. You have to have the truth, the teaching of the word of God. It is important. Doctrine determines right and wrong. It reveals it. Doctrine demonstrates. It shows what you believe. And it's important that we understand that. And so the very first thing that we see that that early church was marked by was by the truth. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. First and foremost came the apostles' doctrine. It's not an accident that's written first. It's not an accident. It always is to come first. And in all epistles, precept comes before practice. When you read the epistles, precept comes before practice. Experience must always be tested by doctrine and not doctrine by experience. What do I mean by that? Somebody help me out. What am I talking about? What does that mean? Let me say it again. Precepts come before practice, and experience must always be tested by doctrine and not doctrine by experience. What does that mean? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If we base our doctrine strictly on experience, that changes, and everybody's experience can be different, and our experience can be led by our flesh, all right? And so therefore, what, what we need to do is our experience, if it doesn't agree with the word of God, then somehow our experience is wrong, because God's word is absolute truth. That's the doctrine we're talking about, the word of God. There are some people today, we've talked about it in this study already, about people saying, well, I experienced this, therefore it must be true. We're talking about tongues, talking about the gifts, talking about different things that people have said. I've told you this, I've used this illustration before, man I witnessed to when I I, I worked as I was working my way through Bible college, he said that he knew he was saved and I said, how do you know you were saved? He says, because I went to bed and my bed stood up in the air and went around in circles and I saw an angel in my room the base of my bed and I knew I was saved. Okay, he had an experience, and I'm not sure where that experience came from. A lot of things that could have come from. The guy drank a lot. I don't know. But I can tell you this, that doesn't line up with the Word of God. So whether he, his experience was not reason, I've heard a lot of people, by the way, give, well, God has always helped me. God has delivered me. God has kept me safe. Therefore, I know I'm a child of God. That's not what the Word of God says. We have to go to the Word of God. And so everything we look at, we have to make sure that the precept, it comes before the practice The doctrine of the Word of God comes before the practice. It has to be at the very beginning. And so the Apostles' doctrine was the very first and foremost thing that we see. You remember what the Lord Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, 26? I know you're going to remember it. When I put it up there, look what it says. It says, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you, what? All All things, and bring... Uh, all things to your remembrance of what? Whatsoever I have said unto you. He's talking to the apostles right here. And he's saying, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. He's going to remind you what I said to you. He's going to continue to teach you. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about the apostles' doctrine. We're talking about and what they, what they were teaching. Did they teach the epistles? No, we have already talked about that. The epistles had not been written yet. Did they teach the gospels? The living gospel, yes. But the written gospel? No, it hadn't been written yet. They had it written in their heart. They had the experience they had with Christ and what he taught them. What they taught was what they were taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. Can Somebody help me out. What are some things that you think they probably would have taught that the Lord Jesus Christ taught them? What do you think? Any major things that the Christ, yeah, salvation, absolutely, the gospel, salvation, absolutely. Can you think of something specific though that the the Lord maybe preached a sermon or something, and maybe they would remember that. Any, Any any times like that, what do you think? Yeah, to love one another, absolutely, the greatest commandment, love God, love each other. All right, How about the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, there's so many. You think about all the time they spent with him, and, and everything that he taught them, and he and he told them. Remember how many times he said that he would have to die, and that he was going to pay their sin debt, and that he would come again. I mean, there's so much of this that he taught them, and he said that that he was going to uh, 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 give them the comforter, and, and so there's so much. That he, basically, what they were teaching is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ taught them, and taught them, and so God designed the church to be a place where his word is proclaimed and explained. That's what was going to happen here. The word of the Lord Jesus Christ was proclaimed by the apostles and was explained to them and taught them, these new converts, that's exactly what they were going to do. And it's, nothing's changed with that. God has designed the church to be a place where his word is proclaimed and explained, where there's teaching that goes on, where there's preaching that goes on. You look at the epistle, the pastoral epistles. Paul, he mandates such a priority all through the pastoral epistles when, which, where he described the ongoing process to Timothy when he said this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Notice what he says. "...and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses... The same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. What is he saying here? What's he saying? Help me out. Yeah, that's basically what he's saying. But what is he saying as far as the word that he's supposed to train or teach with? What is he supposed to share? The truth. But where did he get the truth from? And the things that thou hast heard of me. What he was taught from the Apostle Paul. He was taught the Apostle's doctrine by word from the Apostle Paul. And not only the words he heard from him directly, but what others had heard him teach. And then obviously in the letters, the epistles that he wrote to them, he was training and teaching them with the Apostle's doctrine. That's exactly. And by the way, that hasn't even changed for today at all for a pastor He's supposed to get into the Word of God and or the things that he's been taught according to the Word of God, and then he's supposed to proclaim that and teach that so that others then could teach that to their children, to those that they are discipling, to those that they are teaching. It's a continual process. Paul's uh, letter to Timothy and Titus to reflect the priority of preaching the Word, by the way, in the church. Um, when you look at the, possibly the last epistle the apostle Paul wrote, the past. Farewell words that he wrote to Timothy, they were this. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, he says this Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. He's giving him a command of what he is supposed to do. Preach the word is so important. So a pastor must be one who holds, a preacher must be one who holds fast, according to Titus 1 9, holds fast the faithful word as he hath been taught. That he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. He is supposed to hold fast the faithful words that he's been taught. Things of the word of God, things that he's been trained in. And, and the disciple in, in his life. There's been so many people that have that have impacted my life, and I've learned from. I can go back to my father growing up. Pastors that had an impact. Professors that have an impact. And then, obviously, all of that is from the Word of God, most importantly, from the Word of God, and holding fast to that sound doctrine, to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. And so the early church, they sat under the teaching ministry of the apostles, whose teaching now written in the pages of the New Testament, is to be taught to, uh, by all pastors, to and by all pastors and all teachers. And a commitment to the apostles' teaching is foundational to the growth and spiritual health of every church. It's so important we understand that. All right, so go back. Here we are. They have 30,000 new converts just got saved. 30,000. I'd like to have a problem like that. I really would, but I can't imagine how overtaxing that must have felt. There were 12 apostles. They've got 30,000, I mean, excuse me, 3,000 new believers. There's 12 of them. They've got 3,000. There's just 12. They, they must have been, listen, there must have been times they'd come at home at night, and they would lay down on their bed, and they couldn't utter another word. There's times, I'll tell you, on, on Monday, sometimes I feel like that, but nothing compared to what they must have felt like. Nothing. I can't imagine what it would have been like. You see, these new Christians, they were hungry for the word of God. They were desiring the word of God. They couldn't get enough of it. Let me ask the question tonight. Do you, do we desire the word of God? And obviously, if you're here tonight on a snowy night, preaching to the choir, I understand that, but it's more than just showing up on a Wednesday night. Do we hunger and thirst after the word of God? I mean, like a newborn babe, as Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 2, that we desire the sincere milk of the word. Do we desire that? You know how we know whether we desire it or not? Is do we read the Bible? That's the first question. Do you read the Bible? Just coming to church on Wednesday night doesn't mean you read the Bible. We ought to be at church on Wednesday night. But do you read your Bible? Do you mark it up? I mean, when I say mark it up, not necessarily do you have to highlight everything. Maybe you do in your Bible. Or you take notes. You're taking notes. Some have a journal. Are you studying the Word of God? Do you desire it? Are you hungering after it? These new converts, they desired it. They they wanted it. Listen, we see this infant church. It was marked by the truth. They were learning the apostles' doctrine and and the apostles were teaching them exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ had taught them. And now through the power of the Holy Spirit of God, He continued to teach them. So that they would be able to teach these new converts. He continued to empower them. By the way, me saying there's only 12, God knew how many he was going to choose and how many were going to get saved. He made exactly the amount he was needed, and he empowered them with the power of the Holy Spirit of God. So they were able to do it. It was not an impossible task. It's just, when I look at it and I think of logistics, I'm thinking, humanly speaking, I'm thinking pastorally speaking, I think about how challenging it would have to be, and you couldn't do it in your own strength. There's no way you could, and that hasn't changed either. We can't be what God wants us to be without the power of the Holy Spirit of God. But we must remember that this church was marked by the truth. It was marked by a group of people that were being taught the apostles' doctrine. They were desiring it. They were eating it up. They they wanted more of it. Secondly, it was marked by the tie. The tie. Look at verse 42 again. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Fellowship. This is the first occurrence of this word in the New Testament. That word in the Greek is koinonia. It means fellowship. And the root idea, if you look that up in the Strong's Concordance, you'll find that it means commonness. It means commonality, fellowship, koinonia. These early believers, they shared a commonality with one another based on their faith in Christ. Now this is what's interesting about this and why I'm even pointing it out. It's because that every time this word is used in the New Testament it denotes some kind of sharing either sharing something with someone you find an example of that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 4 you can look later sharing something with someone or sharing in something someone else is experiencing all right sharing something with someone or sharing in something someone else is experiencing in here in Acts chapter 2 the emphasis of the word is on giving Sharing, giving. Look at verse number 44 there in our text. Notice what it says. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. You see, fellowship in the early church cost something. It cost something. In contrast to our use of the word fellowship today, it was much different than what we use fellowship for. Fellowship is not just a sentimental feeling of oneness. Fellowship is not simply uh, sharing a cup of coffee out inside the new lobby. That's not what this is talking about. Not necessarily. I'm just making a point of we, we think of fellowship in the wrong context. Uh, fellowship is not little cliques meeting together where only certain believers are welcome. By the way, I hate that. And God does too. We ought not have clicks. And I don't know this church to be filled with it, but we ought not have it. Clicks are not. Now, what I'm talking about, I'm not talking about small groups either. And the small groups should not turn into small clicks either. We need to be very careful of that. But that's not what fellowship is talking about here. Fellowship comes through sharing and giving. That's what fellowship is talking about here sharing and giving. There's a beautiful illustration of this. I want you to let's go ahead and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. Look at it, if you would. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. Hold your place here, we'll come right back. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. Here we see an emphasis on the word of giving, an illustration here. Um, To give you the context, Paul is talking about the Church of Macedonia, Churches of Macedonia, here in uh, chapter 8, verse 4. Notice what it says there. Praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. So what are they praying? What are they asking? What are the Churches of Macedonia, in the context, that's what he's talking about, what are they praying to the Apostle Paul with much entreaty? What are they asking? What are they praying for? What are they asking to, to, to have happen here? Do you see it? Praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Hello, Randy? absolutely, to take that money they had raised up and to, I pray you, take take this, take this and use this to help these fellow believers that are hurting, They're, they're suffering right now. And what's so amazing by that, okay, that's fellowship, right there, it says the fellowship of the ministering, that's the same word, the exact same Greek word, take this, We want to fellowship by helping them, by giving and helping them in their great persecution they're under right now there in Jerusalem, the church of Jerusalem. We want to help them that are in such bad shape there. We want to help them out. You know what's amazing about all of that? The Macedonian church giving this money? If you read this passage, they were were in great trial of affliction. They, they They were beyond poor. They had nothing. And yet they had such a love in their heart for their the, the fellow brothers and sisters that they were willing to take up what they had. And that's why they had to beg Paul to take it. He knew. Yet they had such fellowship, a commonality of wanting to share and to be able to help those that were in need. Hmm. You see, fellowship, it happens by giving to others. That's true Fellowship. Now, when you think about this word that we use and abuse all the time, we need to remember it's link with giving. Fellowship that we use and abuse all the time, it's linked to giving. It ought to be. Do you want to have fellowship? I've heard people say things like that. Man, I I just need fellowship. It's linked to giving. If you want to have fellowship, you have to be a giver. And that giving could mean a lot of things. That giving could mean that, okay, you step out. You take the first step. You help with that need. you got a need. Help somebody else that has a greater need than you. You're going through difficulty. Help somebody else that's going through difficulty. Fellowship with them. Meet that need that they have. If you want to be a person of fellowship and fellowshipping with the saints, that means that we are giving of ourselves. It could be time, talent, treasure, yes, but giving of ourselves and helping them. You want to be a person that is involved in fellowship, you have to be a giver. So let's go back. Go back to chapter 2, verse 42 of Acts. And so we see the infant church, it was marked by the truth, it was marked by the tie, the fellowship that brought them together. And then thirdly, they were marked by the table. The table. Look at verse 42 again. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Breaking of bread. Now, what's that referring to breaking of bread? What do you think? Communion. 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 Yeah, the Lord's Supper. There's a distinction. You look a couple of verses later, it talks about breaking of bread house to house and then eating of meat. It's talking about eating together. This is specific different. I looked in different commentaries to make sure I wasn't off on that, and everyone I looked at basically said the same thing. This is talking about the Lord's Supper. This is talking about remembering. A reference here we're seeing in what they're doing. The Lord's last request, by the way, before he went to the cross, was this do in remembrance of me. You remember what he said. So in baptism, we show our death with Christ. First ordinance. In breaking of bread, we show his death for us. Second ordinance. And this duty is not optional. It's a command that the Lord Jesus Christ himself gave. In the breaking of bread, we ought to have the Lord's Supper where we remember. And in being baptized, demonstrating that death the death of Jesus Christ, identifying with, with the death of the burial of our own body, our own self, showing our death with Christ. And then remembering that his death was for us. Every believer ought to be involved in both of them. And by the way, that is an a, a, a ordinance that was given to the local New Testament church. It's something that is part of what the church is to, supposed to be doing. Another reason why you should be a member of a good New Testament church is so you can be part of these things. All right, so it's the, the New Testament church was marked by the truth. It was marked by a tie, marked by the table. And then fourthly, they were marked by the throne. Look at verse 42 again. Look at it. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. So what did they continue steadfastly in? Hmm? Yeah, doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. And so when you look at this and you read this, really what it's saying is they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. They continued steadfastly praying. Oftentimes you read this, first thing you want to say is, what was the apostles' doctrine? We are steadfastly in. But no, it's everything that's in this verse. They were steadfast in all of these things. It wasn't just an occasional thing. It was something that was continual. They continued steadfastly in praying, praying, Do we really believe in the power of prayer? Do we really take God at his word when it comes to prayer? I heard a great saying, it goes like this, prayer is the thin nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. Prayer is the thin nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. It moves the hand of God. Is what prayer does. They were steadfast in praying. They were continually devoting themselves to Prayers. You know, remember Jesus there in John chapter 14. I love John chapter 14, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And there's, there's so many good verses, but as he's there, he's trying to prepare his disciples. He's getting ready to go, and, and, and he's going to be leaving them. And, and he's, he's trying to give them uh, words of encouragement and understanding their sense of loss that they're going to have, and they anticipated him leaving He made this promise to them in John 14, verse 13, he says, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. You know, the early church, they took that promise as the source of God's provision for all of their needs. They they took that promise uh, uh, that that, that God had promised them that, that they would relentlessly pursue divine help and because they believed that what he said was true. They were relentlessly praying. We see it all throughout the book of Acts. You see it again in chapter 4, they're praying. Chapter 7, they're praying. Chapter 9, they're praying. Chapter 12, there's so many different prayers we see through here where they are continually steadfastly and praying. I don't think the prayer meeting was probably the least attended meeting that they had in this New Testament church. Sadly, the stepchild of the church today is the prayer meeting. And obviously, I'm speaking to the choir tonight, and I'm not saying that because I'm trying to get you to think about who's not here. I'm just saying it's a shame that people make a decision whether they're going to go to a prayer meeting or not different than they make the decision of whether they're going to go to church on Sunday or not. I don't understand why there's a distinction. I don't get it. I don't understand it. When a, when a church, a body of believers, by the way, the membership of the church has determined that we're going to set aside a time that we come together as the body of Lighthouse Baptist Church and to, to grab on to God and prayer together and to take it so lightly that people don't even show up. Something's wrong. And I say that, I'm talking about as a, as a, a problem across our country. You want to know why churches today are so anemic? It's because they don't have the power of prayer in that place. They, they, they're not praying the way that they should. I mean, there's people, if you had a gospel concert on a Sunday afternoon, would pack out an auditorium, but not come to small groups and have a time of prayer. If, if you're going to have a big concert of some sort, if you had stand strength team that was up here and on a big stage and breaking big old pieces of ice and ripping phone books in half, by the way, I can do that. They showed me how. They showed me how. Maybe I should do that. We'll get more people coming. come. You like that idea? Yeah, kids would like it. Maybe not. Probably not. Can't even find a phone book. <laughs> I'm having some fun with it. But you know we had 500 people that Sunday morning for that service? Right here in this room hmm. makes you wonder doesn't it and I don't want to be prideful when I say I, all I'm, I mean because we're here right we're here this is not about that I'm saying we've got a problem in our society in our churches where prayer is not a priority what do we think it is it's not optional God's word doesn't make it optional it's commanded it's so needful I guarantee you, these apostles needed prayer. I guarantee you, with 3,000 new converts, these, these they needed prayer. These people that came out from the life that they were living in Judaism and made this transition over to following Christ, they needed to pray. You won't talk about turmoil. That's why there's some of the things that they did is different than what we do today. I mean, there's some mechanical things that they do differently, not spiritual things, I'm not saying. We're not asking you to sell everything right now. They lived in a different time. And yet, there's so many people today that will go day after day after day after day and never even say a prayer. And if they do, it's because it's for their food and out of obligation. Something's wrong. And we wonder why we don't have the power of God in our life. We wonder why the power of God, we, we don't feel the power the way we should in this place. I can tell you this, I need your prayer. I need your prayer. I can tell you that Pastor Parker needs your prayer too. These young people need your prayer. Our families, we need to pray for one another. We live in a very difficult day. might not be like it was then, but I'll tell you what, we face problems that there's no way we're going to get the victory if we're not praying the way we should. There's no way we're going to see souls saved the way we could if we're not praying. God has given us promise to pray. He'll hear our prayer. And yet we don't take advantage of it. What an opportunity. In Hebrews chapter 4, to be able to come boldly in the throne of grace. Boldly. And I don't come in my name. I come in the name of Jesus Christ. He asks us to come. Unlike the early church, we have forgotten the biblical command to pray. We have more important things to do. Something's wrong. Here we see with this church in this emphasis, we see a fourfold realm in which the early church moved. Fourfold realm four different things that they focused on. They focused on the word. They focused on the fellowship. They focused on the cross. They focused on going to the throne. Unfortunately, today, there's many believers that emphasize one of these practices at the expense of the other. You see it in so many places in churches. You see it in individuals. We need all of them. We need to get into the word. We need to study the word. We need to have a time when we're taught the word of God. We see it throughout. Paul speaks about his teaching of them and them to teach. The command that God has given to me for me to preach and to teach the Word of God to this church. That's part of being a pastor of this church. And being in a place where you can be taught and listening to the Word of God being taught and getting into the Word of God and learning the Word of God yourself and delving in further. The teaching of the Word of God ought not be the end. It ought to be a spark that helps you to continue studying the Word of God. My goal on Sunday night in our small group, I'll tell you, is to really just to whet your appetite, to give you some things to think about, and then that week to really delve into it, to learn the Word of God, to fellowship, to give, to help others, to give, to see what others are doing and and, and joining together and and praise the Lord for what's going on in their life, but, but to give of yourself, to remember what Christ has done for us, and then not forget that that we're supposed to be praying. What would be the four-statement word that would describe this church? What are we steadfast in? And by the way, when I say this church, it, it doesn't mean just the pastor. It would be described by individuals. What are you steadfast in in your life? What would the word of God say about your life as far as what you're steadfast in? Let's all stand with our heads bowed, eyes closed as we pray tonight. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to come before your throne, for the privilege to know you. Lord, I thank you for loving us. I thank you for allowing us to have the privilege to not just know you, but to come boldly under your throne of grace. Lord, for us to be able to open the word of God that you've preserved for us. We can open and know that you have it for us. Lord, that we can fellowship with one another by giving. Lord, that we would remember the cost, the cost that you paid for us. Lord, that we would come to your throne to give thanks unto you. Lord, to make our petitions known unto you. Lord, to ask for wisdom from you. Lord, I pray that we would truly be a people that are marked with being steadfast, steadfast in your word and fellowship and remembering and praying. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe God has spoken to your heart tonight. I want to invite you We talk about praying. We have an altar here. I invite you to come. Would you just come tonight and say, Lord, I want to be steadfast. I want to make a decision. I want to be steadfast in reading your word, studying your word, fellowshipping, looking for needs and helping, giving, being there for others. Praying. Praying. Maybe may be seated.